This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology? The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty-Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrol wonders how we can appreciate or even make art in the present age. What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? Can we distinguish between information, fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Martin Luther King is often remembered for his soaring oratory, but the commonplace emphasis on his rhetoric in place of his ideas too often allows enemies of King's agenda to domesticate him, or worse, to weaponize his taken-out-of-context words to bolster the very forces of racism and oppression that King had struggled to defeat. Today, we're discussing a great new book on King's political philosophy— including its not-very-good aspects on gender, and his debate with the Black Power Movement. To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. is out from Harvard University Press and was edited by Tommy Shelby and Brandon M. Terry, who are my guests. Before we get started, please support this podcast on patreon.com slash the dig. And also, please tell your friends about the show. We need your financial support so that my producer and I can make a living and pay for overhead. We need you to tell your friends about the show because we would love for more people to listen. You can support us at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Brandon Terry and Tommy Shelby. Brandon M. Terry is an assistant professor of African and African American Studies and of social studies at Harvard University, and the guest editor of a really interesting recent issue of the Boston Review, 50 Years Since MLK, which features his essay, MLK Now, and essays from all sorts of other people, like Kianga Yamada-Taylor and Aziz Rana and Samuel Moyne. It's a great issue. 
Tommy Shelby is the Caldwell Tipcomb Professor of African and African American Studies and of Philosophy at Harvard University. Amongst other things, he is the author of Dark Ghettos, Injustice, Dissent, and Reform, and We Who Are Dark, The Philosophical Foundations of Black Solidarity. Here's the show. Brandon Terry and Tommy Shelby, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for Thanks having us, Your new book, an edited volume of essays on Martin Luther King's political philosophy, is premised on the argument that King has never really been taken seriously as a political philosopher. Explain why this has been the case and how King has been framed. Well, I think I wouldn't say that no one's ever taken him seriously as a philosopher. I don't think that his public reception, even amongst um, scholars more broadly who work on King, um, the tendency is not to focus on him as a systematic thinker and to explore his ideas, but to tend, tend to focus on his, um, you know, in a, in a social history mode to focus on his role within the civil rights movement, or uh, occasionally you'll get uh, emphasis on his rhetorical practice. You certainly get uh, a lot of emphasis on his role within um, the church and, and and theology, but within sort of the you know broader discipline of of political philosophy and political theory, and even within some um, elements of intellectual history, people don't tend to spend a lot of time exploring his ideas in in detail and um, working through you know his various books and essays and, and speeches and sermons to try to you know draw out his systematic uh, worldview and um, and situate him within um, the history of political philosophy more broadly and in the the black political tradition um, in particular. Sure, I also think that um, you know one big problem uh, with with the reception of King is that you know we we tend to tell what I've called um, into shape a new world and elsewhere a romantic narrative of the civil rights movement. And partly that story is, you know, one one kind of key element of that story is that the civil rights movement is supposed to be calling us to be true to who we always already have been, right? There's a, a you know, there's a there's a way in which we treat King um, by not considering him as a thinker, but considering him as a rhetorician or, um, you know, kind of heroic activist. And of course, he is those things as well. But we reduce him to those um, elements and and basically go from the premise that uh, he's not telling us anything new. He's just kind of, you know, reiterating the deep wells of our democratic political culture, the American creed. Uh, and so, you you know, there's a kind of picture there that so shapes the reception of King that we don't even think to look to him for as a source of new ideas or as a source of anything challenging. Um, he seems altogether too familiar and, you know, into shape a new world. Uh, you know, I think one of the things we're, we're really up to is, you know, really unsettling and uprooting that picture and drawing out all the different ways, um, you know, that, that, that King uh, is a challenging interlocutor. I thought that a uh, point that you, that you made about the, this romantic narrative in the book was really compelling, not only in terms of how, to approach King, but to approach the popular 
memory of the civil rights movement more generally and just this sense that what the problem was that the civil rights movement confronted was not any fundamental issue with the United States, but just the fact that its promise had been that black people had been excluded from its its promise. And thus King operates in this framework as the sort of historical device that allows America to fulfill its own its own promise. How do you see this operating, not just in the case of King, but more more broadly in terms of how we think about the civil rights movement? And what what are the political consequences of thinking about the civil rights movement in that in that way? So when I use the device of um, romance to, to talk about this history, what I really mean to underscore is this idea that uh, we narrate the history of the civil rights movement, you know, primarily as a kind of moralist tale about the transcendence of eternal good over, um, you know, contingent vice and injustice and circumstance, uh, that it's about a kind of unity coming into being, right? Whether that's um, a unified black political community, or if it's a unified American community. Um, and that, you know, ab- above all, it's, it, it's a way of, um, it's a way of responding to a kind of task of political philosophy that, you know, John Rawls and other folks um, describe as reconciliation. Uh, so it's, it's a way of um, it's a way of training us to to kind of um, endorse the existing political order uh, in certain respects and, and and see it as already containing the seeds um, the seeds of the the ultimate realization of justice. And when I think that the civil rights movement is conscripted to that kind of story, uh, we have lots of problems. You know. Um, we tend to tell it as a national story and not as a international story, one that, that really uh, needs to rely upon the geopolitics of the Cold War and the newly um, liberated nations of the so-called third world. Um, we tell it as a story that's primarily a regional story. Uh, so it's about the South as a kind of distinct um, domain of racism in the United States and not really drawing out the continuities between um, the North and the South in terms of institutional racism on one hand, but also in terms of black political activism on the other hand. I mean, Glenda Gilmore has this great uh, description of, you know, you got to understand black political activists in the North are almost entirely Southern transplants. And she calls them a kind of government in exile, people trying to wage war against um, Dixie uh, from you know, exile in New York and Boston and places like that. So all of those things start to fall out, not to mention, you know, the kind of local grassroots organizing um, that, that, that isn't so much about the charismatic distillation of, you know, the, the rhetoric of American um, redemption. So, you know, when we lose track of these things, I think we end up leading our political judgment astray in uh, endorsing what is ultimately a kind of, a, you know, a less radical vision, uh, a more conservative vision, and not just conservative politically, but conservative intellectually, in that um, we don't entertain really dramatic uh, ideas like of, like the kind King entertained about how to refound our nation on a more just and equal um, foundation. 
this unity that King in the conventional wisdom is conceived as accomplishing is then projected back upon the founders as something that they prefigured and maybe even wanted without fully knowing they right. they wanted, even though even though the history shows that's that's very much not the case. Um, a, another point that you two make in your introduction to to this collection is the the way that King and the broader movement has been rendered irrelevant by today's conventional wisdom in the sense that it's been entombed in the past. A a man who's been rendered obsolete because the movement that he led, according to this account, has triumphed. And you quote this remarkable line from Cass Sunstein, um, which blew me away. He argued that the movement was, in essence, conservative and backward-looking. What ends are served by framing King in this manner? Yeah, this is a complex, complex issue. I mean, on... On the one hand, it's it's natural when you're trying to persuade people to change, um, even with that change is quite fundamental, it's natural to draw on things that they already believe, things they already accept, and maybe even cherish or uh, regard as sacred. So it's natural to, and King does this, he will, you know, he draws heavily on the Bible, he draws on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and you know, familiar ideas from uh, the broader Western tradition, often to make his points, right? So he can he can push you along um, by drawing on things that you ostensibly are already committed to. So that that feature is, is certainly there in his in, in in his thought, and I can see why people emphasize it. And it's it's a it's a, a part of the broader Black political tradition to use those materials partly because they do resonate, and not just with white people, but, but people quite generally, res- and including black people, resonate with them and um, are things that, that, that uh, as I say, they, they are supposedly already committed to. So I can make, give things a kind of conservative cast if you, if you do that. But I think it's important to see the ways in which when, where, where King thinks he needs to, as he will often say, push for a revolution in values to try to uh, point out that maybe not every idea, moral principle, or value we need is already found in, um, say, the Constitution. And so that might require us to think beyond, say, what the founders might have thought, to reconsider things that they might have thought. And that has to be done in a subtle way, right? Because you really are trying to persuade. So you don't want to make it seem like you're making a, a, a deep rupture from things people already are, are committed to. That's not going to be terribly persuasive. But it does at least open up uh, space for us to consider you know, other values, other principles, to question some things about um, the sort of general ethos of uh, uh, the U.S. And, um, and, and, and even begin to put some pressure on things that people do cherish, uh, in fact. So I think he's walking a, a fine line there, right, between, you know, drawing on these resources that might make him seem conservative, right? Um, even like invoking the American dream in, in some cases, um, while at the same time trying to push the nation and the world in, in what he regards as a more just progressive direction, which might mean departing, departing from some of the things that they're committed to. And so there's a sort of this, this dynamism in his relationship to the, the material of, of, American political culture. He's not making a clean break from it, but there is this this dynamism there that's 
flattened in conventional historical accounts. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, again, if you if if all if all you're expecting is for him to reiterate what's familiar uh, and try to dramatize, you know, the the key exclusion of race, um, I think you miss a lot. And um, you know, as Tommy just pointed out, with rethinking the kind of constitutional order. I mean, King had all sorts of ideas about what would be needed to actually make this a just society that um, would require some, you know, pretty dramatic adjustment to the Constitution, whether they're things like a guaranteed uh, annual income or, um, you know, a a more expansive framework for uh, collective bargaining that would extend into things like tenant organizing or welfare rights organizing. or even, you know, something like the the, the critique of militarism, um, which really, really, really has dramatic implications uh, for, you know, how power is organized in the United States. Um, you know, these are things that aren't really tightly tied to um, the existing order, uh, and, and 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 do require something like this kind of dramatic revaluation of values or revolution in values. Uh, that that he's um, explicit about arguing for toward the end of his life. This tendency that that you both identify in the introduction to to trap King in a historical box and put an expiration date on the challenge posed by the civil rights movement, you write, uh, also motivates people. And we've seen this we see this constantly extracting pithy lines from King because he was such a great orator in a way that confuses or even reverses their meaning. And I think often tends to tame that meaning. And a few examples come easily to mind. One is the paraphrasing of a King quote that was placed on his memorial statue in D.C. a few years back, which read, I was a drum major for justice, peace, and righteousness, and completely missed what he was talking about and made him sound boastful, which was not what the point of the speech was. And then, most recently, of course, the Super Bowl ad. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. By giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great. Tell me about why there is this powerful tendency to abstract King's words from their their radical context and and even repurpose them to, in the case of the Super Bowl ad, crass commercialistic ends that would have made him, I don't know. (laughs) Well, it's easy to, I mean... Now, meaning, you know, obviously not at the time when he was alive, but now in in, in retrospect, you know, King's a, a, a revered figure. Um, almost nobody is willing to publicly um, regard him, guard themselves as like against him in, in, in some ways. So if you combine that with his um, brilliance, with um, wordplay and phrase making, um, then, you know, it, it, it kind of lends itself to these um, sometimes nefarious uses, right? Where you can take uh, a metaphor 
or um, a literary image that he's used to, you know, capture uh, an argument or a theory that he's advancing, right? And it's meant to kind of stand in to kind of make it memorable. But it's like that, that's something that kind of comes at the end of a of a detailed analysis, right? And if you just extract it, the the literary image or metaphor or um or, or phrase from the underlying um, analysis or, or or theory, then it can be made to do whatever you want it to do, right? So it's very easy to so you say sell trucks, <laughs> hmm? say sell motor vehicles. <laughs> yeah, you know, easily, right? So. So I think that in a way, the, our tendency to focus on, I mean, how many books are there about, you know, King's words, right? It's all about his words, right? And it's, um, and he, he was very aware of his ability to, to, to um, come up with a memorable phrase, right? So, and that, that's part of why he was a, an appropriate spokesperson. But, um, but it does allow us to, um, a lot of people in general, to uh, take one of those, those memorable the resting phrases and just attach it to whatever kind of analysis or aim or goal or agenda that we happen to have. And I think this happens on, on, on the right and on the left, frankly. Uh, uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but you can see why people do it because you're trying to invoke uh, a revered figure, a sacred figure. And, you know, one might do the same thing by, in, in, you know, invoking Jesus or invoking, you know, Thomas Jefferson or Lincoln or whatever. And so he basically is playing a similar role in people's rhetorical moves to advance, you know, whatever aims they happen to be um, trying to push. Does racism facilitate this pervasive idea that Martin Luther King had words instead of ideas? I mean, I think so. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which, um, quite frankly, we, we still don't give African-American thinkers um, or, or thinkers of color, the kind of respect they deserve in the academy um, and in, and in the, the sort of public uh, sphere. You know, they're seen as people who are, you know, they, they add a kind of rhetorical flair or um, experiential uh, supplement to the existing ideas of, of more well-known white thinkers. Um, and, you know, we you know, again, uh, b because you don't presume that there are any really um, serious ideas there, uh, you don't even think to look. Uh, and also, you know, I mean, this is something that, that Tommy's work has been really phenomenal at, um, at, at forcing people to reckon with, is that there's a kind of translation error um, in a lot of mainstream uh, political theory or philosophy or even public philosophy where the kinds of problems that that, uh, that tend to preoccupy uh, African-American thinkers or other thinkers of color uh, don't get treated as philosophical problems. Um, and, you know, again, one of the things we're trying to do with the volume to shape a new world is, is push those things into the, into the mainstream of philosophy and political theory, right? So, you know, real severe, um, you know, questions about, you know, what are the ethics of protest? What are, what kind of um, responses to oppression are dignified? Uh, what kinds of oppression, re responses to oppression are self-undermining, right? How should we think about, um, you know, uh, our, our relations across borders, 
when we're in a context of uh, oppression within a given society. So all of these kinds of questions that that usually don't um, register for, for for many political theorists or philosophers, um, they're quite central to the tradition that we uh, work out of, um, you know, and 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 really want to get more on the table uh, to inform the broader field. I also would add that I mean, you know, in our fields, I think. You, you take certain figures, like if you take, you know, John Locke, or if you take Kant, or if you take, you know, Hegel or Marx and so on, you have like, you know, numerous, numerous essays and volumes and conferences just devoted to thinking through their writings and really parsing things really carefully, trying to figure out exactly how the argument is supposed to go. What are they really claiming? with like, you know, sophisticated reconstructions of their ideas. I mean, this is done repeatedly. And I think, you know, you don't, there's nothing comparable to that with um, a black figure. I mean, you don't have, um, I mean, our, our volume is really, to my knowledge, really only the second volume of papers focusing on his political philosophy, you know, by what, what political philosophers, political theorists focusing on his political philosophy. The earlier one would be Robert Burt's the liberatory thought of Martin Luther King Jr., um, which I think maybe five, five or six years ago. Um, and there's really, you know, nothing else like that, right? I mean, um, that where there's a kind of careful walking through of his ideas in a systematic fashion. And if you can compare that to the work on um, many white figures, especially white men, um, you know, the, the, the difference really jumps out at you and you can't help but think that part of this is just the sense that um, these black thinkers probably don't have much um, that's deep and profound um, to say. And so you have to kind of go into the text with the presumption that there's something for you to learn, that you'll be engaged by it and challenged by it in order to get that kind of sophisticated analysis and engagement that we're hoping people will be inspired to, to, to do, um, but given the, the work in. In, in our volume. The ideas might not be taken seriously, but they do put on a good show, I think, is maybe people's tacit. Yeah, I think that's about right. I'm by no means uh, a political philosopher, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but the only, the only two black figures that I can think of having been accorded similar treatment approaching that of, of, of major white political philosophers would be, I guess, Du Bois and... Fanon? That's probably about right. I mean, you might be able to put Douglas in there to some extent, mm-hmm. um, but those would be the ones that would stand out to my mind as uh, the figures that have gotten the most uh, the most attention to their to their work and that have drawn the attention of at least some uh, political theorists and philosophers. The last misuse of King that I want to ask about before we get into what King actually believed and thought about and said, is perhaps the most dangerous and pervasive, which is the frequent conservative invocation of King's dream for a colorblind society. Not long after his death, uh, President Reagan, arguing against job quotas, said, 22 years ago, Martin Luther King proclaimed his dream of a society rid of discrimination and prejudice a society where people would be judged on the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. And then Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts in 2007 
in a case ruling against school integration programs, uh, infamously wrote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. He didn't cite King, but the, I think the explicitly, but I think the implicit citation was, was clear. Tell me a little about where, where this misuse comes from, because I think it's just, it's power, it, it, it's been very powerful for the right. In part, it goes back to what Tommy mentioned before, which is that um, if you can conscript King to a political project, uh, people often do try to do so because his, um, you know, his stature is so enormous in the American pantheon of, of heroes. And um, because, you know, people don't know King's thought very well or think that there is no thought to know, um, you know, these cynical appropriations can be effective. Um, they're, they're used out of context, but if people don't know the context, then, you know, they, they, they can be quite effective. Um, and it flatters the conceit of the people deploying them because they don't want to think of themselves as um, racist or contributing to racial injustice. Uh, but, you know, of course, when you're looking at King's actual thought, I mean, there's, there's just simply no question uh, that, you know, although he envisions, um, you know, a, a beloved community where people's uh, social networks and um, opportunities for flourishing won't be structured uh, by race and certainly not a racial caste system, he he recognizes that in order to get toward anything like that, um, you're going to have to take race into uh, the forefront of your considerations, not just a consideration, but at the forefront. Uh, there's going to be questions of corrective justice uh, to, to remediate uh, inherited historical disadvantages. Um, there's going to be a need for aggressive anti-discriminant anti-discrimination um, efforts uh, by the federal government, by local governments. There's going to need to be um, an active public sphere in civil society organized around preventing uh, sy systematic humiliation and discrimination in housing and uh, welfare bureaucracies, things like that. Um, you know, and, and even King's vision of integration, I mean, I think is, is you know, has so much more teeth in it than uh, people tend to recognize. They, they kind of quote the piece of, I have a dream uh, where it's kids holding hands. But, you know, King thought you would really have to uproot the uh, metropolitan boundaries um, and radically reorganize how we do schooling, uh, municipal funding, uh, mass transit, things like that to, to, to bring about the kind of integration that he thought would be an ultimate good um, and, and, and be more uh, and, and more properly facilitate uh, justice in, in American society. So it's just such a radically different vision um, than the conservative misappropriation. But that can only get off the ground if we don't know the contextual king. And I, I think that's such a. Oh, go ahead, Tommy. Well, I was only going to add one small note. I mean, uh, the. Daniel Allen, the political theorist, uh, contributed to our volume a piece on on integration, and she she explores uh, um, 
some of the more radical ideas that are uh, a part of King's vision of integration. And, 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 and one part of that is the, the idea that, you know, true integration uh, involves the, the sharing of political and economic power. Um, so you can't, it's not just about, um, you know, being friendly to other members of other um, racial groups. Um, it's about being incorporated into the society in a way that allows black people to share equitably in how society is governed and how economic resources are distributed and how they're used. And so integration, I think, is so often just put forward as a matter of like an ideal diversity. You just want lots of people of different races all together in the same space or same institution. But it's very important for King um, who wrote an, you know, an essay um, on ethical demands for integration, where he explores this in some detail, um, it, you know, that we, we see this as a matter, a matter of the empowerment of racialized groups that have been previously um, stigmatized and subordinated. Um, and that's the true, I think, ideal of, of, of integration that he's really advancing. Which is, uh, I think, it's so important to emphasize is not, is not the view um, it's the correct view, but it is not the view that is currently passing legal muster for what survived of affirmative action. The view, the argument is that white people like me benefit <laughs> from the presence of, of, of people of color and whatnot in the classroom. Right. I also think it's, te- it's telling historically that in this case of integration, that the conventional history records Brown v. Board of Education as this sort of triumphant endpoint in in the struggle for integration and the Supreme Court ruling in 1974 in Milliken v. Bradley, which rules against interdistrict suburb and city school busing to actually achieve integration, that huge defeat of a plan of the only sort of plan that would actually achieve actual school integration is, is, is mostly forgotten. And the debates about, uh, precisely how to organize metropolitan boundaries, right? Um, You know, part of King's debates with the Black Power movement, you know, revolve around these sorts of questions, Um, whether you go a community control direction or whether you try to restructure, um, you know, the nature of our metropolitan areas and the the dynamics that structure them uh, so that you you would get... um, you know, a, a, a more profound power sharing arrangement. You know, these are tough questions, of course, but, you know, these are questions that, that have sort of fallen out of uh, our sense of what was at stake in this moment. That leads me into my my next question pretty well, which is I wanted to ask you, Brandon, about the challenge that the Black Power movement posed to King, their critique of King, and how King responded. Can you say a little bit about how that challenge emerged and, and what their critique of King was? Well, it was a really wide ranging debate. I think one of the most interesting in the history of um, black political life, um, you know, so, so you had black power critics uh, moving against King on a lot of different dimensions. Um, some uh, were skeptical of the appeal of nonviolence uh, for a couple of reasons. Some thought it was uh, a kind of corroding, inf- a corroding influence on 
what I would consider a kind of masculinist sense of dignity and self-respect. Um, and I think King was right to, to you know, uh, dismiss and deflate those criticisms. Um, others, I think, pointed out more correctly that King's uh, nonviolent direct action politics often drew upon uh, an implicit threat of black uprising from below, uh, but I think they often did not <laughs> uh, draw the correct implication from that, from from acknowledging that fact, which is that um, just simply the threat of black uprising from below wouldn't change things for the better. Uh, what you really did need is a nonviolent movement of the sort that King uh, was leading. Uh, in, in in order to actually uh, achieve those gains and and because there's that a majority threat. problem, there's a majority problem, and uh, there's a problem with you know the 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 moral witness of these movements, right? So, you know, if you're in a in a moment of contentious uh, politics that in in a, in a society severely marked by racial injustice, uh, you really don't want to get of a lot of uh, grist for your most reactionary opponents, uh, the white supremacist, to um, you know to, to to launch an all-out suppression and repression campaign against black communities. Uh, you you really want to um, try to try to maintain the moral high ground as best as you can, and you know when it when it starts to just become an explicit war of all against all, you know it's it's not likely that blacks. Um, can can survive that kind of uh, you know that kind of descent into madness. You know, in addition to all those things, of course, um, you know, King was also, you know, you know, King was quite supportive of many of the Black Power contentions. So things like, you know, the idea that that it was important to cultivate a kind of race pride, uh, but but he was very wary that that would turn into chauvinism. Uh, he thought it was you know perfectly fine to um, you know organize block voting, uh, certain kinds of institutions, um, but that that those shouldn't preclude you from pursuing alliances with the broader society because you know you didn't want to lose um, lose sight of the fact that uh, political economy was also important uh, and not simply reducible to race so that there are all these changes that are happening uh, in the in the 60s um, you know and that that, that structure of world we live in uh, that he thought meant you know were, were, were great occasions for a kind of interracial solidarity of the left uh, and that would be the only hope for African Americans to try to um, you know seize some semblance, semblance of justice uh, you know, as 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 automation was, um, you know, eroding jobs and uh, lowering the standard of living for the people uh, already trapped at the kind of bottom end of the socioeconomic uh, strata. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Police, a Field Guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. It doesn't take firsthand experience to learn the meaning of pain compliance or rough ride. 
Police, a Field Guide is an illustrated handbook to the methods, mythologies, and history that animate today's police. It is a survival manual for encounters with cops and police logic, whether it arrives in the shape of officer-friendly, tasers, curfews, non-compliance, or reformist discourses about so-called bad apples. In a series of short chapters, each focusing on a single term, such as the beat, order, badge, throwdown weapon, and much more, authors David Correa and Tyler Wall present a guide that reinvents and demystifies the language of policing in order to better prepare activists and anyone with an open mind on one of the key issues of our time, police brutality. In doing so, they begin to chart a future free of this violence and of police. Police, a field guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall, out now from Verso Books. In terms of King's debate with the Black Power Movement over violence, one thing I think that you argue, if I have this right, is that King's theorization of nonviolence is often oversimplified, both probably at the time and definitely today. Can you talk a little bit about how King actually thought about nonviolence and how that compares to the conventional wisdom? So, so I'll just say, um, you know, two things really quickly. You know, one is that I think, you know, a letter from a Birmingham jail has a sort of outsized influence on how we think about King's theorization of nonviolence. And so people tend to reduce uh, his thinking on the question to, to one about, um, you know, kind of natural law approach where you, you don't obey unjust laws because they are in some way in violation of a higher moral law. And he certainly thinks that particularly early in his career. Um, but, but later, I think he starts to emphasize more um, the idea that you know, nonviolence, uh, nonviolent uh, civil disobedience is going to be justified by a, a, a sort of basic structural injustice that the political community is failing to uh, actively redress. And that in that kind of context, uh, nonviolent direct action can be um, a goad. It can be a, it can be a way of uh, pushing the issue and drawing these tensions to the surface. Um, and it can be coercive, right? And it is coercive. It's a, it's a way in which you can try to bring the normal uh, functioning of an unjust social order to a halt or at least some state of disruption where you can either reinvigorate the democratic processes and salvage some sense of justice uh, from them, or you can really draw the uh, underlying tensions to the surface and try to push um, you know, the, the, the broader society toward a recognition of you know, just how complicit we are in, in an intolerable state of affairs. One sense in which nonviolent protest, disruptive nonviolent protest can be coercive is even in this good cop, bad cop sort of way of presenting the nonviolent struggle as the alternative that needs to, that the powers that be need to deal with if they don't want to deal with with urban riots can you talk a little about that and how and how king thought about the emergence of of riots 
King was very sympathetic to the plight of um, urbanized blacks in um, in North Midwest and in the West, and their frustration um, at um, being locked out of the the best jobs, out of the best housing, inadequate um, educational opportunity, um, and so on. And he, he could appreciate the ways in which their 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 frustration at at um, which sometimes could lead to despair, uh, their frustration at you know how how slow um, and ineffectual um, efforts had been to try to improve their situation and to actually get them some semblance of racial and economic justice. And so he tried to avoid kind of strong condemnation of riots or uprising uprisings in um, in, in northern ghettos. Um, but he's pretty consistent in. Um, and, and being against them, both on grounds of principle and um, uh, pragmatically, both against them as a, uh, as, a, as a method of bringing about change and um, being opposed to the, 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 the pessimism and loss of, of hope that they um, exemplify, um, because he thought that, you know, hope for him is very much a kind of political virtue. It's very much a that what sustains us in a long struggle for justice, that we not give in to, to despair and a desire to, to uh, um, pursue retribution against those who've harmed us. So he had many moral objections to um, rioting as a form of political uh, expression or response to injustice. And he had pragmatic you know, considerations. He didn't think that this would lead anywhere good. It invites political repression. Um, it invites the police, um, who are, uh, as we know, well-armed and uh, militarized, as people say, uh, to put down the struggle. And, and people who might have been allies uh, now turn against you uh, uh, because you've resorted to violence in your, in your struggle and might be willing to uh, turn a blind eye to the violence of the state in repressing uh, the struggle when it takes that form. So I think he's pretty consistent in what he thinks about it. Uh, this is one of these cases where I think the his the, this phrasing of you know that the ride is a language of the unheard is a way in which sometimes people um, who think of themselves as on on his left or think of themselves as more radical they'll invoke that uh, seem to suggest that he thought this could be um, uh, a justified mode of resistance, but of course he did not think that, and it's pretty consistent across his writings in um, on on this point. Um, but it was important for him to understand, like that, it's not a kind of you know you don't want to condemn that re- that spontaneous rebellion in um, in isolation. You've got to understand that within a broader um, structural situation where most of that blame is on the broader public and on on government officials who fail to respond to the legitimate concerns of those who are engaged in, um, in this case, uh, inappropriate mode of resistance. So, so for him, it's like, you really want to shift the, um, if blame is right, but I think about it, you want to shift at least the, 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 the focus onto the failure, our collective failure to bring about just conditions that give rise to this um, unfortunate response 
Um, but you don't want to, in showing that the sympathy for the oppressed was entirely appropriate, you don't want that to seem to be um, a kind of justification or, or to be suggesting that this is, a, this is an entirely appropriate way uh, to respond because he did not think that was true. And Brandon, I think in your essay on his debate with the Black Power Movement, you argue that in the uprisings, riots of the black urban lumpen proletariat, that the that black power activists really sort of often took on the mantle of 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 being the representative of those people without necessarily um representing those people is that is that fair i think that's right um the the urban uprisings of um the mid 1960s change a lot about you know black political culture and american politics writ large um you know king predicted and i think they, he was right uh, that they would strengthen the, the fascist elements in, in this country and um you know pretty severe right-wing repression they, they did do so um but they also uh, injected a really, you know, um, transformative element into African American political life, which is that, you know, many Black Power activists claim the riots as a kind of uh, warrant for their own political ideas and as the harbinger of of, of a political revolution that they would lead. Um, so, you know, they took, they narrated the riots as a coherent, um, substantive political uh, project, linking it to their own political philosophies in a way that is is extremely difficult to to work out um, from the rioters themselves, (laughs) right? You know, people... (laughs) People get involved in uprisings for all sorts of reasons. And if you if you actually look at the sociology um, of rioting, it's really fascinating because you know most analysts of riots uh, actually separate different waves of participants. So that there are a group of participants who usually start the uprising, uh, and they may have a more political grievance um, straightforwardly uh, responding to a particular act of. Um, you know, usually police malfeasance, uh, and then you have other people join in. But by by the kind of your third wave of participants, you know, they're, they're people who are really just trying to, um, you know, use use the anarchic moment to to redress their own poverty and needs. And that that's not to say that's not political, um, but it looks very different than than the other way. So, I but say there's all a difference just, between there's a difference between the politics. Uh, say, uh, acknowledging that there is a politics to a poor person without a clearly formed political, explicitly formed political ideology looting and defying the state in doing so. There is a politics to that, but there's a big difference between acknowledging that and saying that th- these people are all uh, just a few yeah, steps away from being members of a guerrilla army. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so I think King was, was um, you know, one of his most effective arguments against black power was sort of exposing the um, conceit in that. Uh, and it, you know, it was really problematic for the black power movement as well, because, you know, they claimed to, to have a lot of uh, authority over these rebellions or, you know, really to be connected with these rebellions in a way they just simply 
simply weren't. <laughs> um, they couldn't start a riot. They couldn't control a riot. Uh, and, and, you know, once it became clear that that was the case, um, you know, I think the state was, was, was much more willing uh, to enact severe repression against them. Uh, and, and again, in ways that King, you know, I think rightly predicted. Tommy, you, you wrote an essay about King's thinking on economic justice and wrote that his move into the fight for economic justice is sort of a second phase was more challenging than the first phase because abolishing Jim Crow cost affluent whites little, whereas it cost working class whites something in terms of job competition. Can you talk a little bit about the different class politics of the Southern and then Northern movements? Sure, I can say a bit about it. I mean, I think King thought that, uh, I mean, early on, you know, even in his first book, Stride Toward Freedom, you already have uh, an emphasis on the connection between racial injustice and economic injustice. This is a theme throughout his work. I think he thought that the first phase of Southern movement was largely to get rid of Jim Crow ordinances, uh, you know, um, um, laws that prohibit people from participating in public life, laws that um, prevent people from exercising um, their their right to freedom of association. Um, but those needed to be to be ended. They are a threat to black dignity because um, it expresses a, a sense that blacks are inferior, are are, are contaminating. Uh, a force in society that needs to be separated from from others who have a higher status, so their identity isn't spoiled as a result, and that needed to be all brought down. You also you also need to bring down um, um, efforts on the part of Southerners to prevent blacks from gaining access to the vote, which would now empower them to change their circumstances, where uh, a situation where blacks were significant. Um, uh, part of the population and could exercise if they had the effective right to vote would be able to, um, to change some things. Um, but he thought that that wasn't going to get you everywhere you needed to go with respect to racial and economic justice. Um, you, you need to um, deal with issues of poverty, with employment discrimination, with joblessness, the threat of, 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 of automation to people's living standards and access to, to, to non-menial um, work that paid a living wage. Um, and people need access to good schools, people need access to decent housing, um, the freedom to choose where they want to live, the power, the economic power to enable them to exercise that freedom. And so those things um, require uh, significant resources to be transferred to, um, to buy people who were previously uh, um, impoverished and, and, and economically marginalized. Um, and if you're going to really sort of uh, allow people to be equals and what's supposed to be a democracy, then they do need to be economically empowered to make use of good use of their, their the various liberties and opportunities. And that clearly is going to um, mean uh, a shift of, of resources, really ill-gotten gains, um, gains extracted from an unjust social order, Reshifting those those resources to uh, marginalized and, and and dispossessed uh, populations, and so naturally, uh, people who are affluent 
people who um, have lots of, uh, of uh, resources and, 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 and leisure uh, don't want to give those resources up. I mean, that's a natural um, response, right? So, so persuading them that this is what justice requires, persuading them that you can't achieve justice without some sacrifice, without it costing you something, was going to be was going to be very difficult. Um, and it was going to, and it would mean that many people who might have been very sympathetic to the Southern campaign against Jim Crow um, might be um, much, much less militant um, about the second phase. And the the second phase did not meet with the same successes. He was he was stymied in in Chicago and was assassinated as the Poor People's Movement was just getting off the ground. That's right. Um, you don't, uh, you can't really expect in, in a society, um, like this one to people to kind of be super enthusiastic about, uh, about, uh, a, a much fair, more equitable distribution of wealth and income. Um, and he didn't expect people to be terribly enthused, but he thought that they could be, be a, a combination of persuasion plus pressure through, boycotts and disruptive actions, um, alliances between uh, a range of actors who do have a stake in a more egalitarian society um, could overcome that resistance in the end. One point that you made that I thought was really interesting was that things like a guaranteed income, he believed, were not just an important tool to alleviate poverty and to effectuate redistribution, but also in this sense to decommodify society so that people's standing is not measured by their labor market success. And it's a pretty radical critique, but you also make it clear that King did not consider himself a socialist. My question is, would it be most accurate to call King a radical social democrat? And where and how did he part from socialism? One one trouble with this kind of question is it's often unclear what people have in mind when they say socialism. So you could. Be, <laughs> this is a recurring things. theme so on my had, show. <laughs> if you had a, I bet it is. <laughs> I mean, if you if you if you use Marx, um, as Marx's kind of conception of of capitalism and 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 socialism, then I don't think you can suggest that King was um, a socialist because he's not calling for the abolition of private property in land, technology, resources, or finance. He's not saying, um, not in his public writings, he's not saying that uh, wage labor is inherently exploitative. Um, And, you know, Marx, these are things that Marx would insist on, right? I mean, wage labor is, um, is is just another form of slavery and serfdom. There's no way of making that just. There's no way of making... Um, the seeking of your income through offering your um, your uh, laboring capacity to others for a wage, there's no way to make that just on Marx's view. Um, and you don't see King, as much as he's in favor of the labor movement and defends it, um, you don't see King um, saying anything like that. Now, maybe he thought it somewhere and he said to someone, but it's not in his public writings. He's not defending it out front. Um, and nor do you see him attacking the property question in that kind of militant way. I mean, for you know, for Marx, I mean, the, the abolishing capitalism, that the property question is the central question. Um, and you and the, the redistributing wealth, 
you know, I mean, lots of liberals and social democrats believe in that. Uh, think that the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few is a, is a is a is a inimical to democracy and inimical to an equal society. Lots of people who are 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 liberals think that it's important not to have large intergenerational wealth transfers that allow a small group of people to kind of keep the wealth in their families and, and, and influence government in a disproportionate way. So you don't need to be a socialist to be opposed to those things. And I think, you know, King is certainly opposed to those things. Um, so I think it's very important when we, I understand people wanting to use King to uh, advance a socialist cause, a uh, cause I'm, I'm sympathetic to, but I don't think you, it's, it, I don't think it's a good idea um, to, it's dishonest really, to sort of invoke him uh, um, in this way without due care for what he actually says in his various writings and, and, and public speeches. And people are really just drawing on, uh, for the most part, a few remarks here or there that can be interpreted in a, in a wide range of ways. So I suppose if you think, if you think Denmark is a socialist country, then he, I guess he's a socialist. I do not myself think Denmark is a socialist country. I've <laughs> been there recently. Um, uh, but if you think that, and some people use socialism so broadly to extend to that, then I guess yeah, I would say he was a socialist. But if you mean socialism in, in the sense that, that, that Marx uh, and his allies meant, then I, don't, I think it'd be pretty hard to make the case for that. So fair, fair to settle on left social democrat? I myself perfectly comfortable with that myself. I think it's not a totally, perfectly respectable position. <laughs> Brandon, you and Shadima Threadcraft co-authored an essay um, in the book on King and Gender. And to put it bluntly, he had, especially I think earlier in his career, some pretty retrograde views. Tell me a little bit about what King believed. What we try to draw out is that there that there's some key tensions in how King thinks about gender. It's not a topic that's received a lot of attention, uh, and we were able to uncover some some interesting archival materials. His old advice column in Ebony Magazine. <laughs> that was um, remarkable. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's an amazing reading if you if you ever get the chance. Um, you know, it's people writing in in like 1950s Ebony uh, asking for advice about. All sorts of things like my my husband's cheating on me and he drinks too much and what do I do? <laughs> um, uh, but you actually learn a lot about how he thinks about the family from those and then some of his sermons. And um, what we found is that King kind of one way you could think about it is that King is sort of working at cross purposes. So on the one hand, he's got these defenses of nonviolent uh, direct action, civil disobedience as um, you know, having a magnificent universal quality, right? That, that it's more inclusive than forms of violent rebellion. Um, he's extremely critical of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's idea of the talented 10th, right? These ideas of, um, you know, politics not being able to include a wide range of people, um, that, they, that they should be the, the province of experts or those who have the capacities for violent action. Um, he also... You know, endorses things like you know basic minimum income uh, as as being constitutive of our dignity and you know respecting uh, a wide range of our capacities, not just those that are going to receive compensation uh, as as wage labor. But on the other hand, <laughs> um, you know he's got these these really retrograde views about um, about sex and gender. So 
you know, often the Southern Christian Leadership Conference meetings, uh, you know, are organized in such a way that women basically aren't allowed to speak or introduce new um, new items on the agenda. When they are organizing major events, women often are, are not invited to speak. Um, when he writes about what the family is supposed to be, or you know, he he, he writes that, you know, basically. Uh, the, the family's got to be organized so that everyone takes joy in each other's pursuits and flourishing, but that all of that needs to be tethered to uh, recognition of the nature of man and woman. And then this sort of classic, um, you know, old school, uh, complementarity, patriarchal uh, gender norms, right? So man is active and he needs to be outside of the home and he's always got to measure himself against the achievements of other men while women, even if they have these interests outside of the home, they really achieve their, their most um, most fundamental flourishing in the space of the home and raising a family. Uh, and so a lot of the advice he gives to people um, and, the, and, and a lot of the ways he thinks about uh, these things all come back to his sense of the appropriate place of women and men and his notion of the family. And so one of the things that uh, Shatima Threadcraft and I try to do is show, you know, not only just critique those things, which is pretty easy to critique, <laughs> but also show how the other elements of his thought, this investment in the universal quality of political action, nonviolent direct action, his investment in basic minimum income, his, his, deep attunement to the ways in which welfare bureaucracies and bureaucracies more generally can become humiliating uh, and the need for, you know, pretty active citizen engagement, um, you know, to, to, to constantly contest uh, relations of power and housing and, um, and bureaucracy, how all of those things can be really robust elements of a left feminist vision but how you, you know, in order to get there, you, you'd have to jettison and uproot, um, you know, King's, you know, ontology of gender and his his norms about the family. And you have at to that read point, King read King against King is is the way you put it. Exactly. And and at that point, you know, that's not King's thought. <laughs> <laughs> like King himself is a sexist, but but are there resources that be, can be reconstructed? And you have something in the spirit of King, not his thought. He is a sexist. One thing that I took from that essay was that he was at his most feminist, even if accidentally, when he was most focused on economic justice. I think that's that's right. Um, I think he's also got some interesting moves as a critique of black power masculinity. Um, you know, I think so much of what the black power movement is up to uh, revolves around the rhetorical deployment of certain kinds of performances of masculinity. Uh, and to the extent that King manages to deflate those things, I think that's really useful as well. But certainly, you know, he, he I think the, the, the biggest resources uh, for feminist reconstruction are in this realm of political, uh, political economy. On the black power debate question, you, uh, you pull a really powerful quote from King. One of the greatest paradoxes of the black power movement is that it talks unceasingly about not imitating the values of white society, but in advocating violence, it is imitating the worst, the most brutal, and the most uncivilized value of American life. I think what he's what he's getting at there, um, you know, and he and he he 
draws this out in lots of subtle ways. Um, just that if there's going to be a revolution in values, uh, you know, you can't just, it, it can't just be performed at the level of rhetoric, right? So that one of his critiques of the Black Power Movement is that, you know, for all of this rhetoric about, you know, creating a, a new Black society or um, refounding the world upon, uh, you know, the, 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 the different sort of ontological character of blackness, um, which is also, you know, quite mythic, but, but people believed, you know, that really we need to, to have a kind of um, incisive attunement toward what practices have created the world that we live in. And one of the things he's, he's really, you know, and I think this is also a quite feminist moment in King, is that he's quite critical of a, a stance of hyper-masculinity, which he often calls a kind of frontier mentality or cowboy mentality um, that he sees as endemic in American political culture. Um, so that, you know, we, we often treat it as reflexive that we should respond to insult with violence or violence with more violence. Uh, and not only is that corrosive in protest politics, but it's corrosive at the level of geopolitics and gets us embroiled in wars like Vietnam, which have such severe um, consequences for, you know, democracy, for uh, human flourishing, for uh, global justice, that, you know, um, you, you, you really want to jettison the kind of uh, pernicious cultural norms that lead you to think things like that are rational. <laughs> um, when, when they're, they're quite obviously not, given all the other things you're ostensibly committed to. In Cornell West's contribution to the book, he writes about how isolated King was at the time of his assassination. Can you both talk a little bit about where King was at this point and what lessons that might offer for black scholars and activists and others scholars and activists today? I really like um, Cornel West's contribution on on this question, partly because I think he he's exploring the question of of hope, I mean, I think a constructive way, right? So that you know, hope is not just a matter of um, faith and waiting and, and expecting things to kind of work out, regardless of what we do, right? I mean, hope is really supposed to be um, a kind of moral strength. It's, uh, it's the thing that sustains us um, when we're up against formidable odds, but are, are, are powering through to see uh, a more just and peaceful uh, world. Um, so for him, that, the contrast is really with a, a, a kind of despair and, and hopelessness and um, a kind of resentment that either leads to um, inaction, or it leads to uh, uh, retaliation and uh, a way of uh, a tendency to kind of construe those who uh, act wrongly, act unjustly, to construe them in a way that, that, that sees them as less than human. It sees them as people that um, are incapable of, of change, who, who lack a sense of justice at all, and who are really kind of moral monsters. And that way of regarding others is um, 
uh, as I think King King would say, I think um, Cornell would agree, is 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 really immoral. It's a, de- it's a dehumanization of of your opponents, and these are vices um, that you sometimes find among the oppressed, not just blacks, but um, uh, many groups, um, when their backs are against the wall and they're um, and they're uh, uh, you're in a moment of retrenchment. So I think uh, it's extremely important to to attend to that feature of King's thought in our moment, where they're so uh, uh, little to feel, if you like, uh, optimistic about. And uh, and when you really are up against quite formidable odds, it's important to um, not give in to the the the, the vice of, of of despair and retaliatory um, rhetoric and action. And. I just add to that two things. Um, one way to think about hope, too, that I think um, Cornell West essay underscores is that you know it's it's also a way of training judgment, right? So that that part of what makes pessimism such a vice is that um, you know if you if you have a kind of view that King has, where there are a lot, you know the Social oppression is structured by lots of different um, inputs, right? So there's political economy, there's questions about race, questions about militarism, nationalism, uh, pathologies of federalism, so on. So there, there are all sorts of things that are that are happening, and they're not reducible to one another. And so what it, what a stance of pessimism often does, particularly a racial pessimism, is reduce all of these inputs to one, which is race or white supremacy. And it, it can be corrosive over time because it trains you to not even look for openings or seams for action uh, and opportunities to change things because you don't expect there to ever be any. You think that everything's already fixed, um, that every revolt is already going to be um, you know, futile or cynical in, in some way. And so you, you don't even learn the political capacity to seize an opportunity when it when it actually arises. Um, and I think that is such a big part of what hope looks like is a kind of training yourself um, to see a way when um, other people don't. And you know, I think that that's something that Cornell really underscores. Um, the, the other thing I, I'd want to say too is that um, one of the things that, that Cornell emphasizes in his piece and that, that really captures where King is at the end of his career, uh, at the end of his life, is, you know, uh, a kind of frank speech, right? Like not being willing to compromise or curtail uh, one's commitment to, to real um, principled uh, action and speech for popularity or to just, um, or, or uh, you know, wealth or, or uh, political access, right? So part of King's despair. It's an autobiographical insight as well on West's part, I think. Exactly. Right. And so, you know, I think, I think for, for, for Cornell, he draws so much um, inspiration from that moment in King's life because that's a, a, a feature of his life as well, a thing that he's had to go through. Uh, with his criticisms of of the Obama presidency, and you know, I think in in our moment there is something quite inspiring about um, 
about being willing to take unpopular stands, particularly as an intellectual. I mean, that that's what it's for. Um, that's the vocation. And so, you know, again, understanding King, not just as somebody who's a courageous activist, uh, whose who's, um, carriage is exemplified only in Birmingham or Montgomery, but seeing him as a courageous intellectual uh, committed to that vocation of truth-telling, uh, even when he's alone on, on a dangerous road uh, toward the end of his life, is, is something that I hope people take away from our work uh, and, and from you know taking this opportunity to revisit King as a thinker. Brandon Terry and Tommy Shelby, thank you both so much. Thanks for having us on. Appreciate it. Brandon M. Terry and Tommy Shelby are, amongst other things, the co-editors of To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr., out now from Harvard University Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after predicting that just as the American War of Independence initiated a new era of ascendancy for the middle class, so the American Anti-Slavery War will do so for the working classes— While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. So does telling your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help.